This episode of Nothing Off Limits is brought to you by Alpha Levo IQ, an all-natural brain supplement to bring you increased focus and concentration in your daily activities. Go to alphanol.com for a special deal for NOL listeners only. It will take you to a landing page that looks like an advertisement. You will see a link in the middle of the article that says, get your bottle now. Click on that and it'll take you to a page that says, rush my order. Again, special deal for NOL listeners. AlphaNOL.com. Check it out and looking forward to a great show today with Dr. Alan Berger. Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should. Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at LadyFoxEntertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. Dr. Alan Berger is an internationally known licensed clinical psychologist based in L.A. We're going to focus on love relationships using the theme of one of his books that I saw online called Love Secrets Revealed, published by HCI Books 2006. This is a book that explores the myths and the realities of romantic relationships. And Dr. Berger has an outstanding reputation as a very dynamic educator, as well as being a very practical, no-nonsense therapist, which you're going to hear today. And of course, please go to Dr. Berger's website as we're chatting today so you can check out more about his work at www.ab, as in Alan Berger, phd.com. Welcome, Dr. Berger. Well, good morning. Good morning. 11 o'clock here in wonderful, beautiful LA, and it's a beautiful morning. Indeed. And I'd love to dive in. I want you to share with us your personal journey. I mean, what brought you to be interested in the field of psychology? Well, it's, it's, it's quite a journey. Uh, it started in 1971 when I came back from Vietnam. I was in Vietnam in 1970 to 71, and I went into Marine Corps because I was really struggling with an alcohol problem. I was a teenage alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I thought the Marine Corps would give me some solution to the insanity of my life. And um, it did in many ways, but not in the way I anticipated as many things, right? The adventures of an unplanned life is is one way we could talk about it. Totally. So, So when I went to Vietnam, my alcohol problem became a drug problem. And I started experimenting and using other drugs. So I came back, serious problem. Well, make a long story short, I ended up getting help while I was in the Marine Corps. I was the third Marine admitted on the third day that this new program was started that gave amnesty to us Vietnam vets. And instead of discharging us or throwing us in the brig, they actually, they put us into treatment. Wow. They, they decided to help us. Yeah. Thank God. I mean, that's amazing. So many of us came back with such a serious problem. Absolutely. I mean, we've talked about that on another episode about the PTSD and how severe it was. Um, We actually spoke about it on a a transcendental meditation episode that I do and how um, they were trying different ways to help the soldiers kind of get that peace and calm back. And 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 thank God that people are paying attention to that now. At that point in time, there wasn't much you know, awareness of PTSD. I mean, it became, I think Vietnam was the turning point for many of us Mm -hmm. in terms of looking at that issue. But I got some help. And when what happened, this fellow from the local community, I was stationed at the Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station. And on Tuesday night, we had this drug rap session. 
And one of the fellows that was clean and sober in Kailua came and shared his story. And what so impressed me that night is that this man had the willingness to talk about things that I dared not let anybody know about me. (laughs) And his level of authenticity, Michelle, was just mind-blowing. And it awakened something in me. I, for that moment, I was able to see that there was another way in my life that I could get free from all of the nonsense that was going on inside of me. Up to that point in time, the only way that I got any freedom from myself was to get high or to get drunk. Sure. Totally. That escape mechanism. (laughs) Exactly. And this opened up a possibility that I could have the freedom without having to use a drug. Because the reality was, when I was drinking and using, I wasn't free. I was being controlled now by the alcohol or other drugs. Sure. It's a myth, you know, the whole the whole thing I had set up. Totally. So the freedom that you were finding, was it in the ability to be vulnerable and to express that vulnerability? Definitely. It, it was the it in what I would say it was in realizing that I could risk being who I truly was and that if I could do that I could find a way to be okay with it mm-hmm. with myself. And that's, and that, that's not easy. That's not like a snap of the fingers kind of thing. Oh, no. Look, my journey started in <laughs> 71. This, I'm, I'm going to celebrate 45 years clean and sober. That's awesome. Yeah. That's it's, awesome. It's, it's quite a journey. So what happened is, is it awakened inside of me this desire to really discover some new possibilities in dealing with myself and to deal with my relationships and to deal with life. And I got really turned on and excited about recovery and and these new possibilities. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing that happened. Second thing that happened is the Marine Corps was just starting this program, so they didn't have anybody to work with anybody that was coming into program. So after I had about 60 days clean and sober, they asked me to become a counselor. Oh, wow. So now the The universe just put this right in your lap. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, So now I'm starting to help these guys coming back from Vietnam trying to share with them some of the things I'm just starting to figure out. And I fall in love with working with people, mm-hmm. with being of service. So now, then I set out and say, you know, I'd love to do this. I, I think I've found my purpose in life. And I want to go back to school. I was a high school dropout when I went into Marine Corps. I took a GED while I was in there. So I had a, a high school diploma or an equivalency diploma. And I started going back to school. And that's the third thing that happened. So I fell in love with recovery. I fell in love with helping people, and then I took my first class, which was oceanography, and I fell in love with school. That's amazing. Now, can I take a step backwards for just a second? I'm curious as to what were the reasons behind you even going for that escape mechanism of alcohol and then following that drugs? I mean, what what pushed you to that place? Well, that's such a good question, because what happened to me back in 1963 uh, my father died from a multiple myeloma from cancer. Gosh. And I, I, the sun set and rose on him. I mean, he was, uh, he was the man's man. I the just, man, yeah. He wanted to be a dad. He loved me. He loved my, my siblings, my sister and my brothers. And, he, and I felt that. And the connection to him was so deep and so powerful. And when I lost him, my, the bottom fell out of my world. Yes. And in my family, my mom, she's Italian-American. She fell into this terrible grief for about the next year. So 
I didn't dare bring her my sorrows. My grandfather, this was his only son he lost. And whenever I, you know, would spend time with grandpa, he would say, this is not the way life is supposed to be. You're not, you're not supposed to bury your son. And so I'm sitting there saying, well, grandpa, what about me? This is what I'm thinking inside. You, you stuffed know, your emotions that entire time for the I, I benefit shut, of others, right? I shut down so, I, I mean, I dissociated is the word we have in mm. psychology for it, Michelle. Mm-hmm. I just cut myself off. So about six months after this, I mean, look, so here's an example of the dissociation. I'm at his wake, right? My dad's wake, and I'm sitting in the lobby reading Spider-Man. God. <laughs> that's that's how much... and. To me, I was blown away now when I look back. Not one adult came and said, what's going on? They almost were probably happy that you seemed uh, oblivious to what was going on. They probably thought at the time that you didn't really understand it. Yeah, maybe they th- they totally misinterpreted it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you know, isn't it weird that, that nobody checked it out? Yeah. See, that's the thing. It's like we weren't talking about it. We weren't talking about the experience that we were all having that was so devastated. So nobody, nobody was going towards that. And I think that's another thing that motivated me to help people is that I didn't want anybody sitting out there and nobody asking men the question, how, what is your experience here? How are you experiencing this? What, what does this mean to you? That's so great. And I love that as being the the impetus, like the catalyst, I mean, for making you be passionate about helping other people because of your own experiences. And then, um, you know, it gives you it gives you more fuel, I think, to help others, too, obviously. Yeah, it really does. And, and it's it's a powerful connection. Yeah. You know? And so many people, I think, do experience that um, that family dynamic of putting the head in the sand approach. You know, and not really talking about the big, you know, elephant in the room. Yes. You know. And, you know, today I understand that a lot of that comes from just not knowing how, is not knowing how to start that conversation. We'll be talking about this when we talk about relationships, is that a lot of what goes on in relationships is not because, and I'm not denying that there isn't some of this, but it's not because people are coming from a bad place. But it's oftentimes that they're so ignorant that they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they've never had, nobody's ever taught them. They, exactly. You know? You know, we learn math, we learn geometry, we learn how to, you know, do good grammar. <laughs> yeah. But nobody teaches us how to communicate effectively. Isn't really, that, it's crazy. Isn't that true? And you think about, and, and, and this is one of the exciting things that's happening in psychology right now, and one of the things I'm focusing on is helping people learn to deal with their emotions. When I was growing up, there was no mention anywhere about how do you deal with your feelings? What do you do when you're anxious? What do you do when you're depressed? How do you even acknowledge that in some way? Is it okay to be depressed and anxious, or you're not supposed to have that? In my mm-hmm. mind, that it meant if you were anxious and depressed, that something was terribly wrong. Right. Well. That puts me in a corner. As a man, I don't want to admit something's wrong. I mean, it's a weird deal. That exactly. I've got, you know, so and, it's 
Absolutely. And so then, you know, you're putting that layer on of like societal expectations of how a man should act when he's feeling a certain kind of way versus how a woman's allowed to act. And then all of these other I mean, there's so many different layers to this. It's unreal. So I can see why you're fascinated by it. But I want to I want to take another step back and I want to talk about your training, because once you started to get really excited about helping people, then um, I want you to share with the listeners. I know you talked about this with me offline and I found it to be pretty darn fascinating who you studied with. Yes, yeah, see, so I started to really pursue this whole vocation, if you will, that became an avocation of trying to help people. So I went back to school. I moved out to California. I had an opportunity to start working in, in the field even before I had my degrees, which was great. I could get experience. Well, on the path that I was on, I went to this meeting that was held by the Association for the Advancement of Group Therapy. Mm -hmm. And they had this gentleman, Dr. Walter Kempler there, interviewing a husband and wife who had a child later in life. And this child was suffering from a bowel control. So the child had what they call encopresis, which difficulty controlling your bowels, and enuresis, that child would urinate. Mm And what I watched happen, he did a demonstration. There was probably about 40 of us in the room. What I watched him do with this couple and how he helped them unravel what was going on and how their child's symptoms were were interconnected with the dynamics going on in this family just blew my mind. In an hour and a half, I saw this man just completely help this family transform their connection. In their relationship. Wow. And were there results in terms of the, you know, the bedwetting and all of that? Totally. Totally. The follow-up to this was that things turned around and they got on this different track with the child and started to deal with things in such a different way. Wow. Within six months, the whole problem was resolved. This is interesting to me because probably in most cases, the parents are like, what's wrong with my child? Not what's wrong with us. (laughs) Exactly. Right. That's Mm. the question. Yeah. (laughs) That they didn't ask themselves, mm-hmm. but and this is one of the things I loved about Walter. He had the courage to ask those questions that begged to be asked. Yeah, Walter Kempler, you said yes. Yes, Walter Kempler. So he was a pioneer in family therapy, and he translated the principles of this one approach to therapy called Gestalt therapy. Mm-hmm. And just real briefly, what that means, it's a very it's a humanistic approach to therapy that's based on what the idea that what we're doing right now is the most important thing. It's not our past. Of course, our past informs it, but we're going to make changes in our life by becoming aware of what we're doing right now and experimenting with new possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I found that remarkably refreshing. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, is that um, the basis of the book that you wrote that I mentioned in the opening to the episode of Love Secrets Revealed? Was that the whole reason why you wrote that book? Yes. So I spent the next two decades being training very closely with Walter. I became a part of his institute. I was a part of the international training staff. I would go to Denmark and to Holland to teach therapists how to use this particular approach to family therapy. And I thought all along, I'm gathering all this information of, of how relationships work and what people can do to make them better. And I thought, it's time to share this 
with the public. It's time to pass on this information. Walter's now been passed on for a number of years, but Walt never got around to writing that book. He kept telling me, I'd love to write mm. that book. And so it became my tribute to him. That's so great. I like that. So I wanted to pass on all of these wonderful things that he had taught me that when I see in my office and working with couples has an unbelievable impact on their life and as well as on my own life. See, this is the thing I loved about this approach. It's not do as I say. It's that if these principles make any sense, that they're principles that I live by too. Mm -hmm. Which is never easy. It's always easy to be like, yeah, just go do this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the it's the friend who calls you up late at night and has a problem. And for some reason, you can see their situation very clearly, but then you make the same mistake yourself the next day. <laughs> exactly. And so that's the whole philosophy of this Gestalt therapy approach is that, you know, is that I live this myself. This is how I try to, to live and to, to be present in my own life is to use my awareness to try to in to own what's going on, to take full responsibility for my behavior, that if I'm upset, there's something going on with me, it's not your fault, <laughs> you know, so I try to take responsibility for myself and for what I'm doing, and in that philosophy, I found an incredible freedom, Michelle. Yeah, because you're, you're releasing blame. Yes. You know? So before we start diving too deep, I want to um, start with the basics. When Now as we're segueing into relationships and using this gestalt therapy and all of these uh, secrets that you reveal in your book, what are the biggest myths that people have when it comes to their relationships? Well, God, there's so many of them. But let, let me grab a hold of a couple, right? And, and one myth that really stands out that I really want people to hear is it's this idea that if you're having trouble in your relationship, there's something wrong with your relationship. Hmm. And the truth is that that's not true. See, relationships, the way I understand them, are designed to create that kind of trouble. And if you show up and really understand what that trouble means, it helps you take the next step in your development. So the purpose that one of the purposes, in addition to being able to enjoy yourself and share your life with someone else, relationships grow us like nothing else in life. <laughs> I mean, that mirror. It is. It's that mirror. It's that struggle. It's that trying to hold on to yourself. It's trying to find some way of being connected that's good for you and, and hopefully good for the other person. I mean, those are things that none of us learned. So here we've got our own social laboratory to experiment to try to, to see how that happens. That's a good term, laboratory. <laughs> People took it that way. They, they maybe not wouldn't take things so seriously. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it is an experiment. And, you know, it's okay to make mistakes if you own them and learn from them. Mm -hmm. I like what you said. The phrase, uh, relationships are designed to be full of trouble. <laughs> They're people growers. They really are. I yeah, mean, yeah. That, Which is why so many so many people enjoy being single, so they can just avoid it. Well, and that's what and what happens. Unfortunately, is people opt for that, so they avoid it. That's one response to this, and then they never get to grow themselves in these ways. And and that's the pity because if you really get into a relationship and do what Walter called grinding, I loved his 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 metaphor for this. He says. In a relationship, if you imagine that we come to each other and we've got all of these edges that some are sharp, 
some are uh, not polished, they're unpolished. You know, there's certain areas of the, us that are developed, others that are potential. And he says, if you meet that other person in the right way and connect in the right way, then there's a certain kind of grinding that takes place if you allow yourself mm. to into the conflict. That's the key. But that's the key. See, we are so phobic. We are so pain phobic. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be frustrated. We want things different now. Oh, can it be ideal and romantic and we just laugh and have a good time and we don't really have to talk about anything? <laughs> you, can, you can enjoy that fantasy for however long it lasts in uh, your relationship. Three months, you, maybe. <laughs> right. Sometimes quicker. You know, I've seen it happen in a week. Mm-hmm. People. Um, but, you know, when you come back to reality, it's now if a relationship, if you know how to grind and you're able to do this, it now helps you become the bet to realize your possibilities, to realize your potential. And I want the listeners to know that this is using the term grind in a different kind of way, okay? So- <laughs> yes, there's another meaning to that, and that's fun too. Most of the grindings can be fun, Michelle. It, they result in a different thing, yeah. right, obviously. But they both help us realize a certain possibility in terms of what it means to be connected to someone in the right way. Mm-hmm. What's another myth? Well, another myth is that because we're adults, that somehow we have the ability to communicate. And see, this is a big one. I mean, we think we expect so much of each other. And what I've seen in years of working with people, all of our expectations are absurd. I was going to say some, and then I changed it. Because I think all of our expectations are based on such absurdities that they are a com- in complete denial of what the true condition is that we're in mm-hmm. and people see there what we call there's there's two different kinds of languages if we if we simplify things there's a social language it's the language we use when we go to the store and we interact with the with the checkout person the teller as as we're buying something or purchasing something or when we're at the bank when we're dealing with the bank teller that's a social language that helps us through a transaction mm-hmm. most of us are pretty decent at that mm-hmm. But there's another kind of language that Walt called the personal language. And this is the language that I need when I'm intimate with you to talk to you about what's important to me. Ooh, yeah, that's a tough one for a lot of people. Oh, we are so mute when it comes to being able to speak for ourselves. Yeah, and to be able to kind of like tear off the layers, the armor, and be like, this is who I really am. But people, most people don't want to do that. Ooh, no, 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 not at all. I had a client that say, I'm, he said, after working with you, Dr. Berger, I think I finally auditioned for a speaking part in my own life. Oh, wow. Isn't that a great line? That's great. A that great is amazing. Line. And that is, and I've heard that too. It's like, you know, what's the story of your life? How do you envision your life as a, as a film? You know, like that kind of thing. That's right. Are you That's an right. observer of it or are you actually part of it? And I think a lot of us end up observers because we don't have, don't know how to talk about ourselves in a way that helps us meet our partners to satisfy our needs and to be able to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So what happens is it creates, it's like it creates a default passivity 
And now when I end up in relationship with you, I'm hoping if we're together, Michelle, that you'll figure out what I want and give it to me. <laughs> and, you know, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't do it, I get mad at you. See, that's the, see how absurd totally. this stuff is. Totally. I mean, oh my God. You know, Virginia Satir, who was another pioneer in family therapy, had this one thing about talking about marriage and what it was. And she says, we put such absurd expectations on it. And the expectations are, if you love me, you'll want to do everything with me. You know, if if you love me, you'll know what I want even before I ask you. Mm-hmm. See, crazy it is. And I've even said that to people. Yeah. And then the other thing that you said to me, too, before when we spoke is like, a lot of people think, well, we're having all these troubles, but it doesn't matter because, you know, at the end of the day, we love each other. And that's all that matters. It's really just about the love. Yeah. Well, that's so naive, because what happens is if you don't take advantage of what I call the therapeutic value and potential of a relationship, then what's going to happen is you're going to grow very, very distant from one another. Because there's all these things you're going to want to talk about that need to be talked about that aren't being talked about. And so what happens is, is when you're together, there's nothing to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, it becomes like a stonewalling situation. Well, go into a restaurant. You can tell who's dating. They're sitting there. They're looking across Uh, from each other. mm -hmm. They're talking to each other. The married couples, they got their chairs turned sideways. There's nothing being said. (laughs) And it's not because they don't have anything to say. They got yeah. so much to say, but they That's don't. Sad. Uh, That's sad. That's sad. I don't like seeing that. I don't like that either. You know what the that. ideal romantic situation is, is when you see the, the 80-year-old couple walking down the street holding hands. That's cute. And that couple has done the work. And if they can still talk to each other, because, look, your partner is going to know you better than anybody. And what happens is, is we don't want to know what they know about us because it's tough to look at who we're not. <laughs> that becomes what's, what's difficult to talk about because if you start to, to bring up something that's painful for you in terms of your relationship with me, what I see happen most of the time is I get defensive and say, well, listen, you're not that great either. This is what yes. you do. Yes. So it becomes Tip for t- chat. Right? It plays tit for tat game. So I'm going to tell you, you know, what a fool you are. You're going to tell me what a fool I am, and nothing's going to get cleaned up. But if I was able, if I had more maturity, what I would say to you is, wow, I can see that that hurts you, and I'm aware that this is a part of me that hasn't developed yet. That's a big step to make. Wow. Yes. I mean, huge. Because when you're in the middle of a heated situation um, and there is something that is really hurting you, that the other person um, is triggering in you, it's difficult to remove yourself from that that place of, you know, high emotion and step back and say, oh, this must be about me. Yes. Oof. I don't know. I mean, if you can do that, then you have self-mastery, in my opinion. Well, you do. And what I call that is holding on to yourself. See, when you reach that point in a relationship, you're able to hold on to yourself because what you're operating from the idea that it's not what you're doing that's I need to pay attention to. It's how I'm dealing with what's going on between us. And if I can keep my awareness focused on myself, not excluding you, also being aware of you, then I've got a chance to start to do what's called an adjustment at close range. 
And see, this is one of the things I talk about in the book that I think is so important, is that relationships are about making these adjustments at close range. So if we're talking about something and you want something and I'm having a hard time giving it to you, I can talk about my difficult time, but I can also tell you, look, I really, my desire is I'd love to meet that need. I'm just not able to find a way to get there with you. Let's see if we can come up with some other way. And if you can't, if it becomes this this thing that's just not going to be possible, then that would be a good reason to not continue to work on the relationship, wouldn't you say? If we hit an irreconcilable difference, yeah. that's true. If we hit one of those, I had one of those in my first marriage. I wanted to be a father. Uh, you can understand that now based on what I told you about my dad. Sure. My first wife was not interested. She wanted to have a career, and she didn't want to be a mom. And it was hard for me to respect that because it was so important for me to be a father. So I didn't handle that very well. It was quite immature at that point in time when that came up in our life. But now I look back and say, I am so glad that she held on to herself and said that. What a miserable life we would have had if she didn't want to, right? Totally. She would have been a resentful mom. She probably would have blew off the kids and went back to her career. And you would have been mad at her because she's not playing the role that you want her to play. What a mess. We'd have two kids in in probably a rehab. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because they're like, oh, God, mom and dad are always fighting. (laughs) Mom doesn't want me, you know. How do I deal with that pain? I mean, that's so, you know, at that time, I had so much trouble. And look, that's the other thing about what I learned from Walter is that when, when you mature and grow yourself in the right way, then differences are not a threat to the relationship. Hmm. They are actually very important if we're going to keep the relationship alive and keep ourselves engaged in a good way. Opportunities. Yes. And, and it's important because what do they say? That, that that difference can be the spice of life. You know, you bring something and I bring something. And we bring something different to the scene. If we respect that both, then what we do, and this was the other key thing I learned from him, is that a relationship has to be big enough for two. There Mm. has to be room for two people. It can't be on my terms, and it can't be on your terms. Yes. And I think this is where a lot of people get that divide, is that um, one or both partners are unwilling to make that compromise or to meet halfway. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Because they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to meet halfway without losing themselves. See, mm-hmm. So a lot of people mistake compromise, and this is one of the other things I talk about in the book, is that there's a difference between what I would call finding a true mutual solution to a problem and compromise. In a mutual solution, I don't compromise. I'm able to still hold on to what's important to me, and I'm encouraging you to do the same thing. So when we find a solution, it's something that we both feel good about. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people will do is say, well, okay, I'll give in on this one. Well, if you're giving in, you're not really compromising. You're giving in. (laughs) There's a difference. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't know if I've truly experienced that yet. You know, I always I have had that feeling of, well, I'm giving up something that I want in order to meet this person halfway because they're giving me something that they don't want to give up. Yeah, you know, that's a tough one. See, a lot of us do that. And we were taught, look, one of, one of the myths of relationships is a, is a good relationship is based on sacrifice. <laughs> that's a good myth. 
you know, I think it's a bunch of nonsense. I think a good relationship is not based on sacrifice. It's based on integrity. It's based on you holding on to yourself yes. and you urging your partner to hold on to yourself, to themselves, so that you can truly find a solution that works for both parties. Mm-hmm. And again, if you can't find that solution that works for both parties, then it's considered an irreconcilable difference and it's okay to move on. It's okay to move on or you can decide if you can live with that difference. Right. That one I wasn't willing to live with. Mm-hmm. There can other differences that I can live with. I don't have to have everything my way now. So didn't you and your ex-wife talk about the whole children thing before you got married and all of that kind of stuff? I mean, didn't she give you some flags, some red flags about her, her thoughts and feelings about uh, procreating with you? Yeah. So you know, it's such a great question because we talked about it and she said, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I want kids. Mm. And so that was the, the maybe. It was a maybe. And I needed to take that more serious. I didn't because what I wanted was kids. And so I didn't want to look at the possibility that she may not have wanted them because then I would have had to look at the possibility that we wouldn't be together. And I was madly in love with her. Mm. <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> what do we say? You know, love is blind. Yeah, and you try to put that person in the role that you want them in. Oh, no, you're going to be the mom. (laughs) We say love is blind and marriage is the institution for the blind. (laughs) That's great. So, Isn't it a good one? So so that's the problem with it is that I think that had I been more mature, I would have said, you know, if you're ambivalent, I want to know what that means for you. What part of you wants a child? What part of you doesn't? And let's see what if that's real, because I'm pretty clear that I do. And, and it would be, I think, a disaster for us. And I love you too much to go down that road and then hate you for blocking me from from something I want. Absolutely. And I think that that's um, replayed in so many different scenarios, maybe not just about having children, but also about just getting married to begin with. You know, that, that the long, long engagement that goes on forever and ever, and they but they never actually tie the knot because that, that one person is not really willing to give up the relationship, but they're also not willing to fully commit. <laughs> you're, right, you're right. And look at that. I mean, see, that's a great example of what are you doing to yourself, Right. What is going on that you've, if you're the person trying to hold on and the other person saying, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, what is stopping you from hearing that they're not sure? Right. And denial, it, denial. Yeah. Well, what, what, one of the things I say to wake people up, do you want to be with someone that doesn't want you? And see, if people stop and hear that, the answer is, of course not. What would I do that to myself for? I deserve better. But see, a lot of people are doing that and don't realize that that's what they're doing. They don't want to become aware of this. So you see, now we circle back to what I said in the beginning. Awareness is so important in terms of making changes. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, yes. And also that concept that you brought up of holding on to yourself, that's a big one because, you know, that close proximity, and, you know, and so I've been in situations that are just heated emotional arguments. And so how can you um, cultivate this awareness, this holding on to yourself and avoid the blow up? Well, that, that's sometimes you're not going to avoid the blow up. But l- let's say that, first of all, if you're having the blow up, right, then what's probably going on is that you or your partner has an expectation of how things are supposed to be and they aren't going that way. Mm-hmm. And instead of just acknowledging that and saying, look, I can see what you want from me, but I'm not, I, I'm not interested in being that. I don't, 
I'm not going to, I'm not interested in meeting your need in that Mm -hmm. way. Or they have a certain kind of personality that is more on the passive aggressive side of things. You know, I'm going to be doing an episode on narcissists. (laughs) (laughs) And so they get a joy out of pushing your buttons and watching you blow up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And see, that's where you, nobody can push your button unless you hand it to them. See, that's, that's, I say it in here so that you got to become aware of your buttons and how you hand it to them. Mm-hmm. So if, I, if somebody's pushing my buttons, I'm not worried about what they're doing. I'm worried about what the hell am I putting it in their hands for and why do I keep circling back to this and now expecting them not to push my buttons? That's right. So if you're, you're with a button pusher. Guess what? They're going to take any opportunity they can to push that button. <laughs> that's their game, right? Yes. And that's actually the gift to you in that relationship. If you're the person who's getting your buttons pushed, it's because the gift is that they're uh, showing you what your buttons are so that you can um, make that shift towards having better self-awareness for the next relationship. Exactly. So look, so if we're in a relationship and you're, you and I are arguing and you say, Alan, you know, you're stupid. That's a stupid thing you just did. Now, if that used to be a button for me. Oh my God, how dare you insult my intelligence mm. and now start going after you. But if I realize that that's a button for me, I'd say to you, God, you know, Michelle, you're right. I am stupid. I can really be stupid at times. <laughs> it looks like this might be one of them and that's okay. See, if I can own some of these things about me without, without believing that it defines me. See, this is the problem uh-huh. we have. You know, I can be difficult, but I also can, I have another side to me. That's so right. for a relationship, you say, you know, Alan, you're being difficult. Well, if I am aware of who I am, I can say, you know, you're right. And I just, I want to declare that I want to be difficult for about the next 10 minutes. So you can <laughs> stand here and put up my crap or not, or you can walk away. You can do whatever you want, but I just need to be difficult for a little longer. <laughs> and then I own it and tell you what I need. Then you can mm-hmm. hang with me or you can walk away. But you see how I just own that. Yeah. But if I'm saying, oh, how dare you call me difficult? You're insulting me again. Now we're off and running. Mm-hmm. I loved how you said that there's a gift to that, isn't there? Mm-hmm. If you're willing to unpack it and really look at it, you can start to learn about yourself. Totally. I want to go back to the family um, that you were so fascinated by when you first uh, came into uh, training with Walter Kempler and their bedwetting child and the child who couldn't control his or her bowels. Um, what behaviors in that couple were changed that created this uh, positive result of the child not having that problem anymore? Well, one of, one of Walt's gifts was to show people how the child is always cooperating and the child's bedwetting problem was a cooperation with what was going on in the family wow that family could also not control themselves in many different ways the husband and wife they would blame each other they would they would get into this tit for tat conflict Mm -hmm. and there was no way that they knew how to cooperate and be in sync with each other and what the child was doing was reflecting the same thing. The child was not learning how to cooperate and to be able to coordinate himself with his mom and dad because mom and dad were not coordinated with each other and they weren't even coordinated with the child. Wow. So what Walt was able to do is to show them how uncoordinated they were and started to help them see what it meant to be more coordinated. So it's a very fascinating thing. See, this approach to therapy that I've learned 
it means that what I do when I sit with people is I listen to what they don't say to me, Michelle. <laughs> which is a very different way of listening because it's in what they're not able to say to me is where they need the help. Wow. That's pretty deep. Isn't that heavy? I mean, but you then have to make an assumption about, well, I haven't heard about this thing. So does that prompt you to ask them about that and see if they're willing to show you what's inside about it? Yeah. Well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll have them do an experiment. If, if let's say the guy that, let's say I have a couple sitting here and he's just defensive all the time and he can't hear what his wife is saying. And what I will do is I say, look, why don't you try on this? Why don't you try to say to her right now, when you criticize me, all I can do is feel desperate because you don't love me. And I don't know how to hear you without when I get so anxious about you not loving me. And I say, why don't you try to say that instead of telling her she's wrong? Bro. Let's see what happens. And he probably like, you know, I would imagine in a lot of cases, just kind of like, like the turtle going back into the shell, like, Ooh, I don't want to say that. No, but it goes the other way because he's finally able to have somebody see him and he puts his head further out of the shell. Wow. So now he'll come out and say it. And, and oh, because it's a safe environment. And somebody else is kind of like mediating. So he's like, all right, I'm just going to say it here. This is the safe place. (laughs) Support. And I'm, I'm, you know, giving him, inviting him, supporting him so he can find the courage to say some of these things and become more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. As he's doing that, and now we go back to the personal language. As he's developing his personal language, now he can start to talk about what he experiences instead of quibble and argue. Right. Try to make her wrong. And I can see how that uh, cooperation, uh, communication, would then reflect down to the children and then help them heal as well. Yeah. Now then, now the children, because it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. Parents don't realize. I think they do, but they don't. Their kids are these little reflectors, and they just reflect what's going on around them. Mm-hmm. And that reflection is their cooperation. And so what happens is when there's problems... The kids are just showing us exactly what's going on for the parents. Now, the parents aren't aware of that, and it's our job to help the parents figure this out. Fascinating stuff. So um, since we're running out of time, unfortunately, because I could talk about this all day. But, I mean, look, we're just we're stuck, just getting warmed I up. I know. We could talk for a couple of hours, I'm sure, about this. So, we so can we, always do another episode. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. we, we will be doing another one. Hmm? One of the wonderful things in talking with you is that because you've done some of your work, I can tell that, that you get this stuff, that you get what's going on. So you're able to resonate to this and and to coordinate yourself with what I'm saying. So it's a wonderful experience on my side. Well, thank you. To be able to to talk to you in this way because I... Because I do feel that we're very, very connected around these things. Absolutely. I agree. Likewise, it is such great stuff to talk about. We should all be talking about it, which is why I'm doing this episode. I want people to start thinking about it. I want them to start becoming more self-aware. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share with the listeners about, you know, love secrets revealed or myths about love, relationships, whatever? Well, what I would say is don't let your pride stop you from getting help. That if you're struggling, all it means is that you're ignorant. 
And I'm ignorant. I've got a PhD, and I am still incredibly ignorant in so many areas of my life. And, you know, for me, the quality of a person is how they deal with what's going on. Not that you don't have problems, not that you don't deal with them. That's a myth, too, that we're all somehow can grow up through this crazy culture we live in and that we're okay. But to be able to put that aside and let's go to somebody and weave your mind with somebody else. Because what you don't know what you don't know. You can't see what you can't see. And you can't solve a problem with the consciousness that created it. Pull the veil off. Yes. I love that. Well, wow. Dr. Berger, it's been such a pleasure to have you on here. And I can't wait for part two when we dive into your extensive, extensive expertise in addiction recovery. We're going to talk all about your book, 12 Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery. And then obviously you have a you have a, another sequel to it, the 12 More Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery, right? That's right. It'll be coming out June 15th. Awesome. That's exciting. Thank you once again for spending your time sharing your ideas, um, your wisdom, your tips for all of us. I, I know for a fact you've impacted some people out there listening as well as me. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It, it's been a delight. Coming up next on Nothing Off Limits, sex coach Vanessa Marin comes on to talk about common sex myths, and she focuses on the female orgasm. So get ready for that, especially you guys out there listening. In the meantime, please go to LadyFoxEntertainment.com, check out our resources page, say hello, interact with us on social media, talk to you next time. Bye for now. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.